0: Hello to all my fellow 101 history podcast listeners. I know many of you all were wondering when Kirk Monroe would ever come back on the air. But if I'm not mistaken, I do recall from the last time I was on the air, which which is hard to believe that it was towards the end of last month, I do recall telling you all that I was going to be on assignment at the start of July. And for many of you, you were probably wondering what exactly was I referring to with regards to being on assignment. Well, my wife and I were on vacation, and we uh, were vacationing up north in New York State's uh, Finger Lakes region. The Finger Lakes are known for their um, wineries. They're about 170. Of course, that pales in comparison to California's Napa and Sonoma regions, but uh, Finger Lakes wines are phenomenal, and there's 11 lakes total. Uh, we visited four. As a matter of fact, this is, was our second trip to the region. Uh, The last one being uh, five years ago, but what made this one very unique was, besides the fact that we got to visit some wineries that we didn't do before, uh, we visited um, two state parks. uh, One, uh, which is very familiar to us, uh, Tagannock Falls in uh, Ithaca, or in Trumansburg on the outskirts of Ithaca, and another one uh, being Watkins Glen State Park. Uh, The Finger Lakes have amazing scenery. And the views of the lakes are just uh, amazing. I learned um, while on vacation that Seneca Lake is deeper than Lake Erie. And what do you know, in this uh, podcast series that we've been talking about, um, November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913, uh, we should be reminded that Lake Erie has the shallowest of all waters along the Great Lakes. Uh, Seneca Lake which is, uh, in, which is in the middle of, uh, the Finger Lakes, uh, Seneca Lake has a depth of about 640, uh, feet at most. In some instances, it could be about 700, but it's, uh, much, it's, uh, deeper than, uh, Lake Erie. As a matter of fact, uh, Seneca Lake is in the top 15 of deepest lakes in the United States. So that was just some of the, um, Of the uh, most uh, unique information that I learned uh, that I didn't know beforehand, but um, I certainly did miss uh, being on the air with you all, and I know that all of you uh, have more than likely missed my voice and um, the information that I've been uh, sharing with you all per each of the uh, podcast segments that we have already discussed from this uh, book topic series that we're doing. One thing I will say is that it was hard to leave uh, the Finger Lakes. Um, Well, not just the Finger Lakes, but just being on vacation. But I also realized that, you know, I can't be gone forever. Uh, Other people have to take trips and... um, But, you know, being able to travel is not something that should be taken for granted. Uh, Another uh, favorite thing on the trip that I got to do, or my wife and I got to do, was that this time around we got to do boat rides. Uh, Five years ago, the boat rides weren't in season, but we still got to do everything we wanted to do, which was a good thing, even five years ago. But this go-around, we did boat rides on Keuka Lake and on Seneca, and we even did an Erie Canal boat ride. So doing that Erie Canal boat ride brought back a lot of fond memories from um, a year ago when I uh, did the podcast series, uh, The Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation. So... You know, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, now that we're um back into the groove of uh, of uh, regular podcasting, we have to wonder now, uh, what all else could we talk about that has not been covered in November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher. Well, in this uh podcast segment, we're gonna learn about um the process of uh, recovering um Not just recovering bodies, but bodies of the dead who um, washed ashore from this um, terrible storm. We're going to learn about uh, the names of the um, boats that uh, perished um, along Lake Huron's shores. You know, it's one thing when a boat goes down, but more often than not, the name of a boat often um, sometimes has a story onto itself most notably the uh, the crewmen whom occupy the boat, we're going to learn about some things that I found to be shocking by 1913 standards in terms of uh, bystanders' behaviors. But at the same time, I should also be reminded of the fact that the way certain people behaved in terms of doing something that to some of us would be considered unbecoming maybe hasn't changed in all these years later, except for the fact that some forms of behavior ha- have become such a norm that there's greater means to, um, ex- of accessibility to where actions that at one time were not tolerated have sadly become a norm. And I'm sure some of you all are wondering, how can all that play out? Well, we'll learn more as we uh, go into uh, this uh, podcast segment of November's Theory. So, our first uh, lead-off question will be uh, the following. So, let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go. Our first lead-off question is the following. What kind of discoveries were happening along Great Lakes shorelines, most notably on Canada's shores towards southern Lake Huron? Now, remember, folks, uh, four of the five uh, Great Lakes, not only, bo- not only are in the United States, but are also in Canada. So I think it's very obvious, one of them being Lake Huron, the other Lake Ontario, the other Erie, the other Superior. So what lake does not, which of the five Great Lakes does not uh, go into Canada? Michigan. So what kind of discoveries do you all think are taking place along Great Lakes uh, shorelines, most notably on Canada's um, shores towards Southern Lake Huron? All right, well, for starters, The discoveries being made by search parties, what I mean by search parties, folks, it's another term for search and rescue. These discoveries um, being made turned out grim. Grim is another word for bad, folks, given just how many sailors' bodies washed ashore. Secondly, uh, the bodies of crewmen from eight boats, including debris, being scattered became more prevalent, considering these losses alone had accounted for the largest death toll numbers. I can't imagine being a part of a search and rescue um, operation and seeing uh, scattered um, debris from boats washing ashore and just bodies of crewmen very, very um, tragic. It's one thing to see maybe one or two come ashore, but knowing that you are probably going to see 50 or more, close to 100 at most, that to me is a, um, a travesty onto itself. The eight uh, boats that uh, tragically um, perished in this storm along Lake Huron's waters are the following the Isaac M. Scott, the John A. McGean, the Argus, the Regina, the James Carruthers, the Hydrus, the Wexford, and the Charles S. Price. These eight boats tragically lost their battle for survival in the midst of November's fury along Lake Huron. You know, it's one thing to lose one or two boats with your crew, but eight That is just something that never happened before, uh, most notably on um, Lake Huron's waters, but really on any of the lakes alone. You know, yes, one or two go down, but to have eight boats lose their battle. I can't imagine how many communities will be, um, not only will experience devastation and grief, But we must keep in mind that many of these communities, the shipping industry is a livelihood. People know each other left and right. So even if you didn't lose an immediate relative, say like your father, uncle, brother, nephew, chances are you're going to know someone across the street whom lost their dad, their uncle, brother, or nephew, or cousin. It's going to affect you because... Even if you didn't know them well, you still feel the pain for those families knowing that they have lost uh, loved ones whose hearts were dear to them. Tuesday, November 11th, ten bodies were recovered, including a lifeboat and oars marked as the Regina. Okay? The early, this was the earliest recovery made. But identifying the deceased proved daunting. How so? Well, early on, only one victim, that is, of the ten bodies recovered, had with him on hand positive identification. This was wheelsman Walter McKinnis. He carried a letter from his mother. Another victim, being Dave Lawson, got identified via postcard found in his pocket addressed to his brother, Harry Lawson. The rest of the deceased crew uh, were identified in the aftermath of, of a phone call placed by Port Huron Times Herald reporter Alex Stewart, whom went about notifying the Regina's owners in Toronto, Ontario. Somebody has to do the, the unpleasant work. The search and rescue teams uh, found seven crewmen from the Charles S. Price washed ashore near Great Bend. A lifeboat with the name John A. McGeen came ashore with three sailors attached to the boat. The lifeboat belonging to the hydras washed up with four men and a woman. Beach patrolmen found many bodies with life preservers belonging to the Wexford. The search for bodies and wreckage became very tiresome. I I just can't imagine, uh, like I said earlier, being a part of this uh, search and rescue team and you're seeing bodies not only just washing ashore, but you're seeing bodies uh, attached to a life, to a boat, to one of the boats, uh, a lifeboat washing up with, um, with men and with with people, you almost have to expect the unexpected in every um, in every realm. But even for those whom are, who are a part of the search and rescue mission, wouldn't it be fair to say that those members of these teams know someone whom has perished? I would think so. It probably might be fair to say that some of the members of the search and rescue team um, efforts if they don't know someone directly who has perished, then more than likely they know of someone who works in the shipping industry who um, who knows of of a couple of uh, deceased crewmen, whether it's uh, blood-related by family or just um, close acquaintances. The bottom line is nobody is immune from this um, tragic loss of life. Were um, bounties... What I mean by bounties, folks, rewards, were bounties, or rather, I should say, rewards issued per each body recovered along Great Lake shores. Yes, there were. How much of a bounty do you think was issued per each body? I'll give you some number. Um, uh, what do you call it? Options. Was it fifty dollars? Was it seventy-five? Was it 100 or $25 for each body found in terms of a bounty reward? The answer is cho- choice D, $25. You know, $25 may have been a lot of money back then. I'm not so sure that even offering money was the right thing to do, but at the same time, maybe the search and rescue effort teams didn't know any better. Perhaps whatever money was issued, you would hope that whoever did recover the body of a deceased um, crew person would use that money in the most um, appropriate means uh, possible. There really, in a sense, was no guarantee that recovered bodies and wreckage debris would come to authorities completely intact. You know, it's one thing to spot a recovered body, but now I'm sure some of you are thinking, "What do you what, what What are we getting at when we say that there's no guarantee that a recovered body or wreckage debris from a boat that is found would come to the proper personnel, being the authorities intact?" Well, I, I hate to say this, folks, but in the days after this storm had subsided and bodies came ashore, there were eyewitness reports, and these were valid eyewitness reports, coming in, confirming, and I hate to say this, folks, but it did happen. I was blown away, but yet I had to remind myself that there were acts of uh, selfishness and there were acts of um, ignorance Even at the start of the 20th century, it probably is fair to say that acts of ignorance and selfishness have been going on since the beginning of time. So if you want to know um, just how bad the level of ignorance was in the midst of the aftermath of the storm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the information. Some of you probably will cover your mouths in pure disbelief, and you probably would have every reason to. So, let's go ahead and learn about um, these acts of, um, to me, the acts of ignorance, even in the midst of a terrible storm. So, eyewitness reports did come in confirming that looters and thieves went as far as taking valuables out of deceased crewmen's pockets and jackets. How in the world? could one be that inconsiderate what kind of um valuables are being taken out of a crewman's pocket or little owner's jackets money that probably shouldn't come as a surprise but even worse than money a pocket watch why a pocket watch why why do you think that could be sentimental because for all we know folks The crewmen who have deceased, who carried pocket watches in their hand, that could have been passed down from them from a previous generation to their generation. Sometimes heirlooms get passed down from one generation to another. My father um, showed me uh, a watch that his own dad um, had for a number of years, and then my dad inherited it, but it's a very sentimental item to him because it was, my, it, my dad told me it was his father's way of being able to um, to check on the time. I'm sure um, my dad's father probably wore a watch, but there was an alternative uh, means of checking on time when you were on the go if you didn't have a watch on you, but... You know, a pocket watch is something very sentimental, because it's one of those heirlooms that probably was handed down from one generation to another for many of these uh, crewmen, considering just how hard they had to work to uh, make their way up the ladder of uh, of overall rank. You know, it's one thing to be a captain on a boat, but <laughs> you don't become a captain overnight. Then... Um, one man was seen walking away with a life preserver, a life preserver folks shouldn't that be evidence for the authorities? Shouldn't that be something that might ought to be go go about being preserved in a museum, or maybe not so much a museum but something that should serve as a reminder of the loss of life at sea and here is here is someone walking away with a life preserver. And even cigar boxes, a farmer on arrived on his horse and cart to the Wexford wreckage site only to seize canned vegetables from the washed-up steamer debris that is debris from the steamer. who's to say if those canned vegetables are still edible. <laughs> I don't know what some of these people are thinking. Another farmer in Port Edward, Ontario, took a Wexford lifeboat only to convert it into a pig pen. You know, I I do realize that, you know, maybe you need to be creative for means of survival. But to me, I think you would need to be creative in other ways that, that don't involve... Uh, stealing valuables belonging to deceased crewmen, especially taking a lifeboat only to convert it into a pig pen. I don't know. You know, as that old saying goes, we can't legislate stupidity. But it is fair to say that there were several acts of stupidity on the part of bystanders robbing the deceased crewmen of valuables that have incredible sentimental meaning um if you ask me what what's for it's not right to steal money from some from a deceased person's uh, jacket but to steal a pocket watch wouldn't you think the the family of the lost crewman would want that pocket watch returned to them i would think so but not everybody thinks that way and we must be reminded that even in 1913 there were people who sadly didn't think that way the looters and the thieves actions made the job process on the part of the of investigators more complicated how so well the removal of valuables like a wallet wedding ring there's just a few other valuables stolen decrease the chances of properly identifying the deceased victims think about it on a wedding band you know uh, a spouse's name can be inscripted on a wedding band, including the the date of um of we- of being married all of that has um fundamental um meaning and to steal a valuable like a wedding ring or or even a wallet that identifies who you are yeah that that to me is um that's a sin unto itself. You know, yes, you might be taking something that you think you may feel that you're entitled to when you're really not, but you're only to um, jeopardize the investigation. Think about it. Who's who's hurting the most? A community is hurting the most, but the, the deceased. I mean, not the deceased crew people's families. They are the ones hurting the most. And knowing that If their loved ones aren't able to be properly identified within a reasonable time, it's just going to cause more agony and suffering. What shipping organization went above and beyond to assist in identifying bodies washed ashore? Okay, what shipping organization do you think? Is it one that might pertain to um, being right along uh, Great Lakes waters? I would say so, uh, the Lake Carriers Association. This company uh, turned to crew lists from all sunken vessels, which allowed personnel to contact relatives of the missing in order to get better descriptions of those deceased. The descriptions were given to multiple morgues. I can't imagine what the funeral homes would have looked like or just morgues, knowing just how many bodies are being sent and it's not just so much the, bo- the deceased bodies being, the deceased crewmen's bodies being sent to these morgues, but how do you go about identifying? So, by talking to relatives, we can get a better description, okay? John Smith, how tall was he, okay? If he's 5'11", okay, what about his hair complexion? Uh, what other features about him? So by getting these features from the relatives, now we might have a better chance of being able to identify um, John John Smith. Once an accurate match got made, relatives were asked to come in for proper identification. Okay? That's good, but yet at the same time, it's also got to be very hard for a relative to have to come in and do the unthinkable, and that is to properly, ha- have to properly identify. Now, it, you probably have to, we're probably thinking now, um, what about the telegraph companies? Think about this, messages being sent to telegraph companies? Are how are they going to help uh, with um, relatives? Well, Western Union and other telegraph companies went about sending all messages free of charge. How nice. They're not interested in making a profit. Why would you want a profit in the midst of other people's hardships? Sometimes there there has to be a line between what is appropriate and not appropriate to be engaging in the midst of a crisis when multiple lives have been lost in a storm that um, had never been seen before on a scale that um, that did happen. Most of these storms were only around for one or two days, but for a storm that lasted four days, that was very, very odd, very unbecoming, but it did happen. Here's another question to keep in mind, or we should pay attention to. Was the process behind obtaining accurate information good? Okay, Uh, when we say obtaining accurate information, are we talking about news sources. In other words, who's reporting information that is accurate? We have to keep in mind that um, that we don't have 24-7 breaking news alert apps or let alone breaking news alert notices in 1913. So, whoever tells you um, the news first, it can be considered breaking news But at the same time, you you might have to ask yourself, okay, is John Smith reporting news that, in fact, is credible and relevant? In other words, did John Smith check his facts? Did he do his homework? You know, it's one thing to say that X number of bodies have been washed ashore, but now, all of a sudden, if the papers are saying one thing, and we haven't been told everything then who do we believe? So, we have to keep in mind that the system of uh, relaying information in 1913 is nothing like it is in today's modern day times. Although, I probably can say that even in 1913, there probably was a better filter system in terms of, um, how do I say, in terms of people getting their facts straight or getting their homework straight before uh, saying everything under the sun. Not trying to sound political folks, but we do have to keep in mind about how um about how the involvement of news has changed over a hundred years, and we have to keep in mind that um that when we did receive news at one time, more often than not, we took um the word of what the reporters were telling us. It's like my father once said when he was growing up, he only had three stations. NBC, CBS, ABC, and you had news reporters like Walter Cronkite with CBS, uh, David Brinkley, and uh, Chet Huntley. And when those guys were on the air, you, um, when they reported the news, you knew they were telling the truth, and you knew it was accurate. Of course, I uh, grew up with uh, news reporters like um, Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, the late Peter Jennings of ABC. Good reporters, but when they were on the air, you took what they had to say and they and they were honest with uh, with what they reported. I mean, maybe you didn't agree, you may not have had to like everything that they said, but the bottom line is they were reporting the news uh, accurately. But anyways, uh, I guess the, the, the big question we have to ask ourselves is this, was the process behind obtaining accurate information good? No. And we're going to find out why. For starters, the newspapers had already confirmed the discovery of bodies to wreckage from certain ships, including sailors' names. Ah, the newspapers have the lead. Is that a good thing? I'm not sure. But what I do know is that um, shipping company officials could not get accurate information. So, the newspapers are ahead of the shipping companies, folks. Shipping company officials can't get accurate information because the communication systems are unavailable due to downed power lines. I just find it interesting that the newspapers were a step ahead of the shipping company officials. Whether we like it or not, that's how it happened. I found this uh, community in Canada uh, to be one that was, it wasn't the only community obviously impacted by the loss of life at sea, but it was probably um, the one community that, um, that had it probably the worst. This community in Canada is known as Collingwood, Ontario. Small community along the water. It was hit hard due to the loss of life at sea in the midst of the hurricane. Collingwood um, was home to the Collingwood Shipbuilding Company. Okay, so if there's a shipbuilding company, is it fair to say that everyone uh, working at the shipbuilding company is impacted? Yes. How so? Well, they're impacted given by the fact that all whom resided in the community either knew or happened to be related to someone making a living in commercial shipping that's pretty powerful right there to say the least folks and if we okay we know that eight vessels perished on lake huron's waters how many of those vessels lost on lake huron called collingwood ontario home i'll give you some numbers to choose from was it six was it four or was it choice c three the answer is choice a folks six out six vessels that means, folks, that six out of the eight vessels lost on Lake Huron called Collingwood, Ontario, home. That's three-fourths of the um, tragedies that um, have devastated Collingwood. 75% of all uh, lives lost were a result of uh, men whom, uh, whom uh, called Collingwood, Ontario, home. Fortunately, for those men whose bodies were recovered and whom hailed from Collingwood, their bodies were returned for burial. So, if there was any closure of this, that for those bodies found, and for those men whom called Collingwood, Ontario, home, at least they were returned and got a proper burial. It's probably fair to say that there were uh, bodies never found, from Collingwood. I I don't know, but it's probably possible. All right, well, um, let's find out um, whom wants to blame whom for um, for uh, being at fault. You know, I hate to say this, even in the midst of a bad weather storm or a bad tragedy, there's always going to be someone looking for blame. And I should keep in mind, folks, Well, well, let me ask you this. Was there such a thing called FEMA in 1913? FEMA stands for Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, The answer is no. There was no such thing as FEMA in 1913. Matter of fact, FEMA doesn't come into play until the 1970s. And for those of you who are curious to know when FEMA did evolve, back in the late 1970s, um, a young um, news reporter who hailed from uh, Buffalo, New York, was um was uh I guess he was probably traveling by helicopter with uh with another um weather emergency person I'm not sure his method of transportation but I do know that he uh, interned under the late senator uh, late u s Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan this uh reporter alerted uh, Senator Moynihan just how bad things had gotten in uh, Buffalo, uh the great uh winter storm of 77 it was in 1977 and uh, this reporter said to him you know i think we need to have some kind of um, national um, emergency agency to help uh, people in times when uh, things are so bad that the states are so overwhelmed that they need assistance from above so in the aftermath of that storm fema if i'm not mistaken was created the man who proposed this um, idea to the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan was none other than the late uh, Tim Russert, who was the host and moderator of NBC's Meet the Press. I learned this uh, four years ago when my wife and I were in Niagara Falls in Buffalo. We went to the uh, Buffalo, History of Muse- Buffalo History Museum, and there was a section in the museum dedicated to the late Tim Russert and all that he had done for um, in his life, but also for uh the city of Buffalo. So, this question is the following we need to think about here. Whom exactly did shipping company officials, vessel owners, and sailors go after? I think it's an obvious one, but who do you all think that uh, shipping company officials, vessel owners, and sailors went after? The Weather Bureau. It was believed in the eyes of these groups that the weather reporters simply did not provide consistent forecast findings leading up to November 7th. But, the Weather Bureau was going to have none of these accusations. William Alexander, Cleveland, Ohio's Weather Chief Bureau reporter, fired back by stating that storm signals were posted everywhere around all five lakes. And if anyone were to be blamed for the catastrophic loss of life, then it should rest solely within the ship captains, whom deliberately ignored warnings from the get-go. And many of them did. Warnings were issued. But ignorance and disrespect for nature became so visible, where loss of life came about on a scale never seen before. Now... We should keep in mind that, yes, some captains and their uh, crew had already uh, went out into the water before the warnings were issued. But the warnings were issued in enough ad- advance to where, hey, those boats that were already out on the water, they what should they have done? They should have turned around and gone back to dock. Yes, there were those uh, shipping company officials who were not going to have any of this uh weather warnings, given that they were already facing issues with delays and cargo being delivered on time. But if I'm not mistaken, can't cargo be replaced? At least I think it can. But can But can human lives be replaced? No. But at the same time, is it fair to say that even in 1913, that we have shipping company officials who are more concerned about the almighty dollar, and seeing to it that goods are delivered, when they're supposed to be, versus preserving um, the um, well-being of a captain and his crew? Yes. Is it fair to say that even in 1913, we've got uh, officials who are more interested in making profit versus um, safety? Yes, it happened. Uh, What measures had the Weather Bureau implemented come Friday morning, November 7th? Well, for starters, the Weather Bureau ordered storm flags be flown in every Great Lakes port station. Remember those storm flags, folks? They were the 8 by 8 um, red flags with a black square in the middle, which um, meant that a uh, storm, um, which indicated a storm warning. The, uh, the pennant that was uh, placed by the flag that indicated um, the wind direction at which the winds were going. And remember at nighttime what was done? The, if the lantern was uh, red, that meant that the um, gale warnings were on, and the white meant uh, indicated the uh, speed at which uh, wind direction for um, for where the winds were moving. So we can't hold the Weather Bureau responsible for the fact that They had ordered storm flags to be flown in every Great Lakes port station, which did happen. Okay, it did happen, but in how many locations? Was it under 100 or over 100? Over 100. 113 locations. That's a lot of locations for five Great Lakes. So let's do the math. Okay, five into 113. Um, That's about 24... 24.5 maybe at best, I'm thinking, Um, easily at best 24 and a half, um, 24 and a half, 25 locations uh, per each Great Lake at at best. Secondly, the Bureau did whatever was available to provide updated information for all shipping facility stations per each lake, okay? So it may not have been the grandest of information that maybe was provided at a certain moment in time. But I think it is fair to say that the Weather Bureau not only exceeded the minimum guidelines, but were in the moderate range. In other words, they were not, well, moderate to um, maximum range. They were doing everything that they could to the best of their ability, given the resources they had at this particular time in history. So. The Bureau did whatever was available, yes, to provide this updated information for all shipping facility stations per each lake. But lastly, the Bureau had gone about posting wind direction movements. Now, I'm sure what you're probably thinking, what's important about the wind direction? Because can't wind itself change at any time if the weather conditions are just right? Yes, just because winds are moving out of the southwest... It doesn't mean they're going to stay in the southwest, Uh, they're going to be moving from the southwest for the entire day. Wind direction and movement uh, notices became very complexing throughout the storm's entirety, given that many captains did experience sudden wind direction changes without any advanced warnings. Well, this is the 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 beauty in a sense and the um, folly of being in the Weather Bureau system you have it right at 1 minute but then all of a sudden things change to the next so is it fair to blame the weather bureau just because of sudden wind direction changes no did they give out the warnings as as quickly as they could could have yes but we have to remember that um that by 1913 technology standards the weather bureau did everything to its ability and present and posting new warnings as quickly as they became available. Boats on uh, Lake Huron's western side, come November 9th, got some form of protection per winds from the southwest and the northwest. However, the kicker came here. Once the winds shifted from the northwest to the north, those boats became more vulnerable to sudden wind direction changes. How so? where the protection itself decreased, so once the wind direction changed, protection decreases. It's a very um, complicated phenomenon, but it is something we need to keep in mind that just because the winds are in one direction, and once they change, and if the conditions are right, our level of protection on the water can change drastically in the blink of an eye. And as for boats stationed along Lake Huron's midsection, the chances of survival stood slim. So for boats that were already out in the midsection of Lake Huron, it's not like they could just, um, it's, it's not like driving a car, folks. It's not like, okay, let me just uh, pull out of here ASAP and um, just, you know, speed it up to where I can get over into the next lane and um, get into a, a facility where I might be able to seek uh, shelter. In other words, okay, I've got my warning on the radio, car radio, so now I can go do what I need to do. When you're out on a boat, who's to say how long it might take if you're in the midsection of Lake Huron just to be able to get to an area where you can seek shelter? And time is of the essence here. So for those boats that were uh, along the western side, being that they were closer to shore, they did get some form of protection, but... But depending on just how close they were to the shore, all of that changed because of the uh, wind direction. Now, uh, which newspaper became the first to officially call 19, the 1913 storm a hurricane? You know, when I think of hurricanes, or rather all of us, isn't it fair to say that we all tend to think of hurricanes being in the Gulf of Mexico along the Atlantic seaboard? Uh, we think of hurricanes being in uh, warmer climates. Yeah, but I think it's fair to say that the re- that there's a reason why the 1913 storm got called a hurricane, but we do need to find out first which newspaper was the first to officially dub the storm a hurricane. I'll give you some choices. Was it the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Duluth News Tribune? The answer is choice C, the Duluth News Tribune. The storm, per the paper, resembled... Traditional features of a hurricane's activity pattern along the the Atlantic seaboard or the Gulf of Mexico, given that prior to 1913, warnings fell under um, storm heading along the Great Lakes. So, in other words, up until now, whatever um, storm warnings you got, they were basically just titled storm heading, um, storm advisory, storm warning, but, given just how um unpredictable of a year it had been in nineteen thirteen, given that uh, the waters along the Great Lakes had been warmer, had been temperatures had been unseasonably warm. When warm air and cold air do collide, um, anything is possible. But when you have more warm air versus uh, cold air, the greater the likelihood that um that the natural forces that do form, resemble that of a hurricane. So, that's indeed what happened when you get 30 to 40 and 50 foot waves, and you get those three sisters waves, the first one being, you know, big, the second one following ever so closer to the first one, and then that third wave being bigger than the first and the second waves total heights combined. You get that one, two, three punch, that's like the equivalent of what hurricanes on the Atlantic coast and the Gulf of Mexico can do. If there's enough warm water, the waves can rise pretty high to where you get these massive storm surges, eight- and ten-foot storm surges, to where it will pretty much destroy your um, defense walls. I'm not a meteorologist, but what I'm trying to tell you all, folks, is, is to give you all the best Um the best foreseeable images there are possible in our heads to realize, hey, what, just how powerful Mother Nature is and what can um, transpire within a short amount of time to where if we're caught off guard, it's really in a sense a matter of life and death. I'm sure some of you are now thinking, what else is there left to talk about in this podcast segment that's that's relevant? Uh, you know, I can tell you right now that there's going to be some other interesting stuff right now that you all will find uh, um, interesting to know. What stats did the Lake Carriers Association confirm in the aftermath of the storm's fury? Well, the organization reported that nearly 235 lives had been lost. 235 lives per, I mean, we know that eight boats were gone. But if you think about it, I mean, I don't know exactly how many boats total. I mean, we've talked about a lot of boats, but 235 lives have been lost. We also know that nearly 5 million was lost from sunken and stranded vessels, including cargo. I don't know how much that would equate to in today's modern-day money, but $5 million by 1913 standards, that was a lot of money. Now, one thing I will give the Lake Carriers Association credit for having done, and I don't understand why the Canadian government didn't do this, but they didn't. The Lake Carriers Association decided to go above and beyond and support the in, by uh, implementing a solution in compensating families whose loved ones perished in the storm. Now, I'm sure many of you are wondering, okay, when it comes to compensation, how much does a person of a particular rank get over the other in terms of what their family is entitled to? If you you were a captain on one of the uh, eight boats that um, perished along Lake Huron's waters... How much money do you think a captain's family got? I'm going to give you a number range. It's between 500 and 750 The answer is $500. So a captain's family got $500. Now, $500 doesn't seem like a lot, folks, but we also have to remember about the cost of living in 1913. We also have to remember expenses. They were they are not anything like what they are today. We also should keep in mind in 1913 that not everybody owns a car. How ironic that's the same year that Henry Ford introduces the Model T. Model T assembly um, production lines are going into are, are kicking into gear. Cars are being um, manufactured and and produced uh, and where to where most people can afford a car but yet there are a lot of people who still can't. So We do have to keep in mind that there are certain luxuries that not everyone um, can afford, even um, in 1913. A first mate's family earned $250. That's uh, the rank just below a captain. A chief engineer's family got $400. Lower tier positions like a deckhand saw their family members receive $75 compensation. $75 I know doesn't seem like a lot, but you know it's better than nothing. And even with $75, that money can be used wisely for a variety of things. So, the Lake Carriers Association folks paid out $17,825 to 153 individuals. And for what was left of the 1913 shipping season, all boats were ordered to sail with their flags at half-mast. Half-mast meaning that uh, to honor all of those whom perished along the waters in this unforeseen storm that uh, has obviously left a lot of scars. Well, we've covered a lot of ground um, in this uh, podcast uh, segment. It sure has been great to be back on the air with all of you. I certainly have missed... um, Being on the air, but at the same time as I've said before, that uh, podcasting can't be, um, life can't revolve around podcasting. Although it is a hobby, but it is something I um, enjoy doing, and I enjoy uh, sharing information about these uh, stories with you all, because these stories do have a meaning, they are uh, relevant, they um, help us um, be better aware of what um, took place, From generations past. The next time I'm on the air with you guys, we're gonna um, we're gonna learn about um, some of the ships that um, that perished, although we have talked about a lot of them. But what we're gonna learn about is that that in the years after 1913, as technology became more sophisticated, we're gonna learn about um, some of the ships that did perish that they ended up being discovered which I think is really, really worth talking about. We're also going to be talking about, in the next podcast, about theories as to how um, as to how uh, some of these ships sank and how um, crewmen uh, were able to get access to lifeboats, uh, not just to lifeboats, but to life um, jackets. I know you're probably thinking, well, wouldn't they have just uh, been able to have grabbed that on right before the boat sank or right before they were thrown out of the water, thrown out, thrown off their vessel into the water? No, not necessarily. Not everyone has time to put on a a life um, jacket, not everyone has time to even launch a lifeboat. When you consider 30, 40, and 50 foot waves coming at you, yeah, it, it it's a lot to think about in a short amount of time. Well, thank you again for your time as always, and uh, thank you all for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I don't know uh, where I would be today, but uh, thank you again, and take care for now, and stay safe.